Welcome to the Happy Saver podcast. I'm Ruth, a blogger on personal finance in New Zealand, and on this podcast I tell the stories of Kiwis and their experiences with the money in their lives. The people I seek out to interview are often uncomfortable talking about money publicly, and in most cases they have actually never talked about their financial setup with anyone, and that's why you hear these stories from me and not directly from them, so that they can retain their privacy. Now you are going to hear helpful, relatable stories from Kiwis who are giving their tips and points of view on personal finance here in New Zealand. So with that being said, this week I have spoken to a wonderful woman that I'm choosing to call Arataki. But before I bring you her money journey, Pocketsmith wanted me to tell you a little bit about them. Today's episode is brought to you by a company that I really like to use, Pocketsmith. We all know what a Swiss Army knife can do and Pocketsmith is kind of like that but for personal finance software instead. It equips you with a multitude of the right tools to make all of life's money decisions and it's New Zealand made. Perhaps you decide to get a clearer picture of the financial legacy you are leaving for your loved ones. You can use the Pocketsmith net worth feature and it will create for you your complete financial position, including assets and liabilities which are not even represented by your own bank accounts. If you would like to try Pocketsmith, go to thehappysaver.com forward slash Pocketsmith and get 50% off the first two months on a monthly premium subscription. Pocketsmith, clever budgeting software that lets you see your financial past, present and future. I was so fortunate to come into contact with a wonderful woman called Arataki that it's her story I'm delighted to share with you today. Now, she is wanting to stay anonymous, so I've chosen the name Arataki for her because in Tareo it means to lead, to point out, or to guide. And after talking for some time, I really felt that this represented who she is, a woman who has not only created her own unique path, but has brought others up with her to walk alongside her. She is a warm, generous and articulate woman and the journey I'm about to tell you focuses less on the nuts and bolts of good money management but more on the head and the heart of good money management. Plus, in this episode we do cover a few themes that might be upsetting to some so in my show notes, Arataki has provided me with a list of services and contact details so if you want to reach out to find someone to speak with just go to my page and you'll find them. Arataki is now in her early 40s, but her journey began in small town Tokoroa, a town with a current population of about 14,000 people, and it's about three hours south of Auckland. With both Māori and Pākehā ancestry, she is part of a large blended whānau of eight tamariki, and her parents were to go on and separate when she was about 11 years old. And she describes her mother as a strong, loving, responsible and frugal woman, and her father as fun kind, sharing and a spendthrift. Yet, she told me that gambling and alcohol featured strongly in her upbringing, as well as a gang culture in her wider extended whānau. But with that being said, she said there was also a huge amount of love and laughter and lessons and a real sense of being part of a big community. Arataki said that when it came to money, it was only ever discussed with raised voices and there was never enough of it to go around. Through chatting with her on the phone and via email, her warmth and strong character clearly came across, as did her tell-it-to-me-straight attitude, which is why, very early in the conversation, she told me that when she was just a child, she was actually abused from the age of about seven by a friend of a neighbour. Now this was to go on for three to four terrible years. Um, He, the offender, was a really wealthy white businessman who preyed upon those in high deprivation 
and her understanding now is that the neighbours knew what was happening, but that they needed the financial support that this man was providing them, and if he was apprehended for his terrible crimes, then their income would stop. Now, in her straightforward way, she said she has learned that in retrospect, this is when she began to associate money with safety and security, and as she moved into adulthood, she decided that she was going to be a wealthy person, and that having money is what would keep her and those around her safe. And she also associated bad people with upstanding white rich men. Now, she was not to know that at a young age, these events were to shape the rest of her life. She became the first in her family to actually finish high school, and even at this young age, she knew that if she could do this, then it would be possible to encourage those young ones coming after her, because it was not good enough to tell people how to do something. You had to show that it could be done, and that is what she did. Her town was full of gang pads and the environment was not conducive to learning and to become pregnant young and end up on the DPB was the route that so many girls that she knew took. So I asked her if she was actually able to directly influence anyone else. Well, her own sister left school at 16 to be a single mum and it was once Arataki went on to university herself that she was able to say to her sister, look, it is not the prefects or the duxes from school who make up the numbers at uni. It's mostly those who are in the ring, who are fighting it out and who are grinding away at their studies and are learning who form the bulk of the students. Her sister went on to do a degree part-time as a single mum and it took her 12 years, but she bloody well did it. The Waitafano saw what was possible and they now come to Arataki and say, my niece is going to Polytechnic, can Arataki please give them a few pointers and a bit of advice, which of course she is delighted to do. And whenever she can, she is leading others forward. And now that she is in a strong financial position, she is helping others manage financially too. So at the age of about 21, she graduated from university with a BCom, and despite working three jobs throughout her study, she also came out with $24,000 in student debt. And it was as she neared the end of her uni study that she started addressing the abuse she had endured as a child. As an adult, she now had the capacity to view what had happened to her, to understand the power of an adult over a child, to understand that she did nothing wrong to have this happen to her, and to start to heal and to change the narrative in her own head. She had a friend who opened up to her about her own abusive past, and this was a chance for Arataki to see that she was not the only one going through this, and for the first time she was able to talk about her traumatic past and the large impact it had on her life, including a suicide attempt. She could talk about it in a safe place where she was able to open up and be vulnerable and not be judged. And she said the hardest part of beginning to acknowledge and deal with her pain was to talk to her mother, but she found safe people who she could talk to at the likes of Women's Refuge. And as I mentioned, there are many support details provided on my website under thehappysaver.com forward slash podcast. Just search for this particular episode and you'll find all those links there. As this is such an emotional and sensitive topic, the advice Arataki would give to anyone who may be listening to this who can relate is to find that safe person you can talk to and when you are ready, begin to heal yourself. She said that only you can heal yourself, but to help you find the strength, there are so many people out there who can wrap you in support and kindness. And I'm so pleased to say her abuser was eventually convicted of his crimes. Now this abuse made her an introvert where she was the target of bullies at school and she also went out of her way to stay the hell away from any male attention, yet in a way this helped her build her future. 
whereas other young women in her whanau and her friends in the community were seeking out boyfriends and male attention and falling pregnant and dropping out of school, she kept her head down at school and she saw her studies through to the end. Like many, she had part-time jobs from about the age of 15, and her aunt tells the story of Arataki packing her own sandwiches when she was off to visit the mall with her cousins. Whilst they spent their money on junk food, she ate her sandwiches. Arataki said that when veggie soup is the only thing for dinner in your house all week, then $2 was actually a lot of money to spend at the mall, so she said it looks like she has picked up her mum's frugal ways. Gaining her Bachelor's of Commerce degree taught her to work to deadlines and how to write a good report, skills that she uses to her advantage to this day, and her first full-time job out of uni was actually in hospitality. She was drawn to hospitality because when she was young, her mum took her to Rotorua where they visited the Centra Hotel. Now it was in their apparently very grand reception area, which had a huge chandelier that she thought, I am going to come and work in a place like this. It all felt very glamorous and it gave her something to aim for. And although she didn't end up back in this hotel, she did head to the South Island and worked in hotels and was paid, wait for it, $4.20 per hour. And she worked as many hours as she possibly could. She had her eye on a graduate training program, which she was selected for, and her pay increased to $22,000 a year. Uh, This was in the very late 90s. And through the program, where she was based in Christchurch, she was required to spend time with each sector. Uh, So think food and beverage manager, room manager, and so on. And she worked her way through each part of the hotel, learning as she went, and she asked a lot of questions of each manager that she worked with. As part of the program, she interviewed all of the senior female managers, and although they were very successful and inspirational in their own right, none actually had aspirations of having a family. And it seemed that for females in this industry, family didn't seem to fit. Family was important to Arataki, and she knew she wanted a family of her own one day, so she actually left the industry in search of a more fulfilling occupation. Arataki has a personality trait that has always come into use, and it is what helped her try out every part of the hospitality industry before making a call on where to go next. She is a curious person, and it's just inherent in her nature. She found then, and she finds today, that if you are open enough to reach out to people and are curious enough to ask about them, then they are often willing to share their knowledge with you, and you can use that knowledge to shape your own future. And take it from me, I'm also endlessly curious. So you will have some of the most rewarding and interesting conversations with the most random people if you just ask them a couple of questions. Her next job was in the tertiary education sector where she went up and down the country talking to students about education in general. And she said it was a fun thing to do, but she found it a little bit too slow and she found herself getting a wee bit bored. And it was a move with this employer to the Waikato where she had a conversation with a colleague that was to strike a chord with her. The woman explained how her parents, who were teachers, had an investment portfolio and had purchased shares for her when she was born. Arataki wondered what on earth she was talking about. This girl was quite well-to-do and she took Arataki home to her own house, but it was this run-down, graffiti-covered state house with holes in the walls and Arataki couldn't correlate the two. Well-to-do woman living in a rundown house. Mm, How does that work out? So she just had to meet the girl's parents to find out more, and they explained to her that they knew that the government would be making moves to sell off state housing, including the house in which they lived. They kept it looking like a bit of a dump because they felt that if they fixed it up, it would increase the value of it when it came time to go on the market. And if the condition of it was lower, they could buy it at a cheaper price and therefore have a better investment. 
So she kept asking questions like how they educated their daughter and they said that they taught her to forecast what might happen in the future and they realised that they would be given the opportunity to buy the rundown state house, which they did. They also told her about shares in the share market, but at this point in time, she said that her heart was now in purchasing property like this family had, and she was not so open to hearing about the share market. In 1999, she had paid off her $24,000 student debt, and she headed off to do an OE in the UK, as you tend to do when you're from New Zealand. She was paid just £4 an hour, which had her looking around for other opportunities, and she heard about this buzz thing called information technology, or IT, and apparently it was something to do with computers, but the bit that really got her attention was that it paid £25 an hour. Her customer service skills that she had honed in the hospitality industry were really transferable, so she jumped headfirst into IT, earning far better money and spending all of her earnings on having an amazing experience, and she arrived back in New Zealand with a little more cash than when she had left, except she did of course bring back a whole new set of skills. Now back in New Zealand, she started in IT on a salary of just $37,000 a year and then she took it up into the low $40,000 range and by 2003 she had saved hard and was ready to finally purchase some real estate of her own. She was ready to buy her first house. She had not quite saved hard enough though and she didn't have the full deposit or the salary to support her application but she figured that Just getting into the market was more important to her than waiting for the best time, so she asked her boss to write a letter stating that she would soon be earning more money. She took her plan to the bank and she got the mortgage, but she was paying the higher interest rate because of her low equity. She borrowed 95% of the property value, which was $143,000 for this home in Wellington, and she chose a house that was close to public transport and schools. She could live in it and get flatmates to join her and to cover the mortgage. The house worked out well, but the help with the rent, not so much. Uh, Unfortunately, she ended up with girlfriends coming to stay who didn't pay her any rent and her own brother moved in and she didn't charge him. And remember that her boss had signed a piece of paper saying she would soon be earning more money? Well, she held them to that and she did get that pay rise. I really like her style. And it was at about this time that she rekindled a relationship with a guy which would ultimately put her home ownership plans in real jeopardy. Uh, Together they went on to purchase another four properties which were negatively geared yet all appeared to be going reasonably well in their own minds. They became pregnant and were very excited about becoming parents but were then devastated when they lost their baby at 33 weeks which is a heartbreaking and absolutely tragic thing to happen. Her partner actually went off the rails after this and he just couldn't cope with his grief. He became so stressed out uh, what with dealing with their properties and with losing their baby that he actually stopped working. Arataki was in deep grief and dealt with this by keeping as busy as she possibly could and getting the support of her whānau, which is at the core of everything she does. Now, it was a hard, hard struggle to move forward. And it was during this time that she would spend a Saturday at the cricket, watching the children of her friends and whānau play. Now, cricket takes a really long time to play, so she would always take two books to read. One would always be a finance book, such as Letters to Austin by Martin Hawes or Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. And if she read that educational book, then she would let herself read a trashy novel by someone like Marion Keys. And it was Rich Dad, Poor Dad that made her believe that there were only three vehicles to financial independence, shares, property and business. Having seen the debate over land in her youth, watching Māori land being taken from iwi, 
and the debates that raged over it and having herself felt the healing elements of whenua or the land, she chose to invest in property and purchase land over consumables whenever she could. Now one afternoon at the cricket, an older man who she did not know approached her, something that generally had her alarm bells ringing, yet he sat beside her and said, I've been watching you and I want to know what these books you bring every Saturday are and why you do what you do. So she told him her story and then she started to have a conversation about him. Now he grew up in a single parent family and on his way to school each day he would walk through an alleyway that cut through some businesses and he noticed that these buildings kept getting burgled. So he started a security business with a dog to protect these buildings and from there his love of business began. Unbeknownst to her, he was Doug Catley, uh, who in 2013 was a recipient of the Member of New Zealand Order of Merit for services to sport and healthcare services. But in a conversation that she had, she was never to forget that he shared some lessons about the value of hard work and the value of asking and listening through what is being shared and the value of being in business. And just like the conversation she'd had with her colleagues' parents, this was to be another one that really stuck with her. In 2007, her troubled relationship came to a head. About a year and a half after they lost their daughter, Arataki was to lose three babies during their time together, which took a huge emotional toll. And she knew early in their relationship that he did have a gambling addiction, but he had received counselling and was doing really well and he had her full support. She had taken over all of the finances because of this, and she actually referred to herself as the spreadsheet queen. I love that. But unbeknownst to her, he had joined another bank and opened accounts in her name and taken out loans in her name. And one day a bank statement was sent to their house in error and she saw tens of thousands of dollars spent at casinos and with him not working at all, they were in severe financial difficulty. Enough was enough. I asked her if her portfolio of properties could have survived if he had not been a gambler because by now she was earning good money but she said no there was just too much negative gearing and too much debt both mortgage and gambling debt so the ex took half of what they had literally cleaning out half the physical items of their home and he also took half of the debt but still left her with the other half of his gambling debt as well a lesson that she offered to the young and in love is if there is inequality at the beginning consider moving on don't hang around for the later consequences So she ended up with two properties, including the one that was her very first home, and both of them were mortgaged. And after the experiences that led her up to this point, she started to refine those teachings into a plan to lead her forward. And today she leads the Māori strategy for a very large New Zealand company, and she is in a fortunate position of being able to combine her cultural values and social conscience with a commercial focus. So it's a win-win really, and everything I read about her and learned from speaking to her told me that she is a woman who puts the collective above the individual, her whānau front and centre, and she's a real leader with a very strong kaupapa or sense of principle in all that she does. And it was in around 2008 that she met her husband and things began to come together. Now he worked in the same IT field as her, was a divorcee with two children, and they hit it off immediately and have now been together for about 11 wonderful years. She described him as her darling hubby, a Pākehā man whose parents both had a strong work ethic and were sensible in their approach to money, who lived a conservative life regardless of their relatively high incomes. She said her hubby is a good man, a family man, and a kick-ass businessman. They now um, appreciate the beauty of their different upbringings and they work to combine the lessons that they have each learned to bring up their own whānau. 
Now, both came to the relationship with pretty dire financial positions, having both met their obligations to both ex-partners. Their loan-to-value ratio sat at 104%. Their net worth was a negative $300,000, and they had a negatively geared rental portfolio requiring a payment of about $4,000 a month with five dwellings in a crashing property market. But they didn't care because they were in L-O-V-E love. But they didn't just combine their poor financial situation, they also combined their sought-after employment skills and their high-paying jobs. So using these, they started to navigate a way forward. Together, they listened to a podcast that talked about how you could cash flow positive multi-dwelling properties in lower socioeconomic areas. So they started to focus less on single-dwelling properties and more on multiple dwellings, and an added benefit was that they needed little capital to make this happen. Now, as I mentioned, she purchased her first house for $143,000, where she went on to sell it for $260,000, and they began to buy these multi-dwelling properties and take on more and more debt. They got to $3 million in debt at one point, and even though her husband was pretty relaxed about it, Arataki just could not sleep at night, and she really felt the weight and the burden of this debt. The tenants were smoking pee in their houses, there were gangs moving in, there was all sorts going on, and it's reached a tipping point where they discussed the situation and decided to trade it down. They lost some money along the way, but they got their debt down to about a million dollars, which was a level she felt more comfortable with and could again sleep at night. And they moved away from their low socioeconomic housing strategy, and they now have more solid houses or standalone units that are in reasonably good socioeconomic locations, and now they employ a property manager to look after them. After a long struggle and with the help of IVF at the cost of around $30,000, they now have two beautiful children together, but creating their family was a difficult time as she coped with the loss of losing three babies before this and it meant she had to cut back on work, downsize their financial lives and focus on the journey. Arataki was back at work six weeks after her first baby and three months after her second, but she knew that eventually they would have the freedom of choice, but for now it was head down and bum up to support two families plus her wider extended family. Arataki is a woman who gathers others to her and their house must have expanding walls because now it regularly expands from five to eight kids. For the past eight years they have actually hosted foreign students who have not settled with their intended host families and they have had various au pairs to care for their own children while Arataki and her husband both work. She says they now have four kids, two of their own who are under 10 years old, are her two stepkids who are now late teens and their bonus kids who are the international students and au pairs. And she described her home as beautiful chaos, which I thought was a lovely description. She said the dinner table is a really lively place and they each learn from each other because each come from a different culture and have different takes on life. She said that the richness of the cultures around the table and the learning they give each other, she hopes will give them a bigger worldview and her own children's language is peppered with words from other languages, which is pretty cool. She said that everyone is curious at the dinner table and that any question goes. They discuss what it costs their family per month to live and they talk about being very privileged but that they also have high cost to service. If any of them see another person that they want to be like then she encourages them to be curious and to ask questions of them but she also warns them to look out for those people who look wealthy in both spirit and money but are not. And as we each struggle through life curiosity can be used as a gift because she said most people you will come across are good and they will be generous with their time and their information. 
Now, initially, their very first student came via having an au pair and they refused to take any money to have her stay. After all, they were well used to having nieces and nephews stay for free and this just felt the same. But they insisted she be paid and they then realised that they could actually offset their au pair costs if they were to accept the payment that kept being offered. And receiving income from hosting great kids that offsets their own childcare costs has become a bit of a happy byproduct of the situation really. Now one example she gave of two cultures colliding was of two of the very first young people they had come and join them. One was an au pair who saved every penny and she saved up for six months to buy a $350 iPod. The other was a student from Thailand whose father had given her a platinum credit card with a monthly spend of $13,000 on it, which she would spend on the likes of $5,000 handbags. Now she had no concept that the rest of the world didn't just get handed money each month, but those two, they formed a great friendship, each learning from the other, and they are still in touch and still learning from each other. Last year especially, Arataki walked a grief journey, or a whakamamori, which is a suicide within her whanau, as well as having the privilege of having end-of-life conversations with some people that she loved. And while no expert in the issues around suicide are really complex, she said they seem to be rooted in trauma or deprivation and lack of connection within our consumer-driven society. And at the same time, those friends that she lost, they all talked of the same message, be kind to each other and connect with each other. Arataki's hope is that we can all share and learn the skills, financial literacy being one, so we can serve our people, we can feel safe enough to show vulnerability and know that we are enough so that others can see it's possible to do the same. And I just thought that was really fantastic advice. Financial independence, she said, is not something specifically celebrated when we farewell our loved ones, but it does provide the choice and access to aid in many situations. And she said that they have also had the honour of being able to help in situations where additional funding alleviates the worry and it provides options and support. And she said that if they hadn't walked this journey and remained curious along the way, we may not have had that privilege to help. And for that, they are very, very grateful. Three years ago, Arataki took a year-long sabbatical from her high-paying job with a goal to earn zero dollars and to give her time to community initiatives. She said that by this time her bank account was full, but that her heart was actually empty and she wanted to ensure that they were not addicted to the paper, by which she means the money, and that they become more clear about what was driving them. And it raised a question that she now works on finding the answer to. How can we get Māori to achieve both a thriving whānau and a successful financial life without suppressing one to achieve the other? Now, to date, the couple have bought and sold 18 properties and she said that they are slow learners and it turns out that they are also rubbish at renovation and at decoration. So many of these properties were sold at just a minor gain or even at a loss, particularly when they were shedding their debt. That said, most did have reasonable cash flow which helped with the debt pay down and the purchase of further properties and with each transaction they learn a few lessons. They currently have five properties including the large home that they currently live in. Whilst their incomes have risen and they are both on similar incomes of six-figure salaries, they have allowed only very minor lifestyle creep, living, she said, on the smell of an oily rag. And last year, their savings rate was 60%. Now, over the last several years, they have aggressively paid down the debt on their properties and this high savings rate or debt repayment rate has been a huge factor in getting them to what they call their freedom number, which is having enough assets that will generate them a passive income of $140,000 a year. Now this number is pretty high. I'm more used to hearing people say they need say 40 to $50,000 a year of passive income to live. 
but this is where Arataki is again coming at it from a different kaupapa. This figure will support not only their own needs but also their financial obligations and desire to help and support their extended whānau because she fully believes in sharing the wealth around and bringing others along with you. And it's not like she thinks of this as her being generous. It is simply part of who she is. It's a part of her culture to support a network of people much wider than just her, her husband and their children. And this is very different, a very different ethos to how our society operates. And I actually think I prefer it. Now, being the planner that she is, at the beginning of their marriage together, they had created a plan of how much their whānau needed to be free. They then embarked on a 12-year journey to freedom to implement that plan, but they actually hit it one year earlier. And when we spoke in March and again in April this year, this is 2019, she was delighted to tell me that they have done it. They've hit their freedom number, and this has triggered them to put their large Wellington home that they currently live in, but they now no longer need, on the market, and they're going to move into a much smaller property. Now, this sale will also allow her to step down from her full-time mahi and drop her children off at school and pick them up each day. And this is a true milestone, which she hopes to reach by July, and it has been the ultimate dream to take over from their opia, who has been doing a wonderful job, but still support her wider whānau and do it all without any financial worry. Now, as they are in the final stages of powering down their debt, the proceeds of the sale will clear all remaining debt and the surplus will be invested in a way which will balance up their portfolio, which is currently overly real estate heavy. They intend to invest in a mix of index funds, which are also PIE funds, so they've got some tax advantages, which will provide an ongoing income for them. So what with this income and the income from their mortgage-free rental properties, plus one salary still coming in for the time being, she is more than excited about the future ahead, and she lists creating passive income as her greatest financial triumph to date. Arataki said that she has a very small number of individual shares and both of them also pay into their Simplicity KiwiSaver funds and her husband also gets allocated some shares through his work and in time he will be able to also step down from his work when he feels he wants to and when they decide that they would like to move further north to be closer to their whānau. Their housekeeping is in order with current wills in place and a family trust already set up to support their children if they are not around to do so. Arataki said that she won't be giving their kids a handout but will instead continue to keep showing them how to walk this journey so that they can choose their own paths armed with information. And through sharing their journey around the dinner table, when they share kai each night, their children are learning to take an active interest in their own financial lives, with their teenager now picking up personal finance books, which is terribly exciting for me to hear, uh, getting a part-time job and beginning to invest in smart shares. And their youngest too, they love their save, their spend and their give money jars too. So they are starting good money habits very early in life once again reaching out and pulling the next generation up behind her which is wonderful and this is how we should be teaching our children. Now I just wanted to touch on income for a moment because Arataki has a specific point for all the women listening to this. We undervalue ourselves and it's time to stop she said. Next time you are in a position to negotiate a salary, pick a number and add 40% and negotiate down from that number because that is what your male colleague is going to be asking for. She said be cheeky about it and you will be pleasantly surprised. That's her advice. And another work tip that she learned from a property investor called John Gray uh, is to work your way to the bottom with the highest salary that you can. 
She at one point managed 200 staff. She now has no staff, yet she earns more than she ever has before. And this frees up her time to pursue other things like joining a board as a director, for example, uh, for volunteering her time to a range of community groups and other initiatives. She has developed a set of skills that call others to her. So she said, show your value to others and show them that they need you. And she shared with me some lessons she has learned along the way, saying they had little to do with the actual mechanics of financial literacy, but I have to disagree with her there. I think they have everything to do with being good with money. Firstly, she said, wealth is a privilege, honour and serve it where you can. Next, the privilege of struggle is actually a gift. She said, delayed gratification and being frugal is helpful. She said, understand personal value and bring it to the table with humility and grace. Care for the future via wills, contracting out agreements and trust structures. And she said, celebrate curiosity. If someone inspires you, then reach out. Most people are generous of spirit. And she said, work hard, be strategic and holistic in nature. Allow vision and purpose to fuel your journey. And above all, she said, be kind, even in the most confronting times. In the end, it's all that matters. Wise words. Thank you, Arataki. So it's almost time to wrap up, but before I do, I have another quick message from today's sponsor. A big thank you to Pocketsmith for helping me bring this episode to you today. I use Pocketsmith to help me make great money decisions and keep track of my personal finances, and you can too, by going to thehappysaver.com forward slash Pocketsmith to get 50% off the first two months on a monthly premium subscription. Pocketsmith, clever budgeting software that lets you see your financial past, present and future. So this money journey was not so much about the details of how much they have and where they've put it. It was more about how the experiences that you have in life can guide you and take you in a direction that you want to go. Arataki kept drawing from the experiences she has had, both positive and negative, and she kept adding them into her story. There were a few wrong turns along the way as they headed down the not quite right path, but they just reset and they kept on moving forwards towards the ultimate goal of financial freedom. And I'm just so thankful and grateful that she shared this with me and our conversations by phone and email have created conversations around my own kitchen table about how we can tweak our own lives to enrich not only what we do, but what we can do to be kind to others as well. I wanted to end with an email Arataki sent me in response to my question of what advice would she give to someone just starting out, someone in the midst of a struggle perhaps, or to anyone looking for guidance. And she said, Today I would say, dream big and persevere. It may seem like you'll never get there, but if you break it down into bite-sized chunks with a big vision to guide you, you'll get there. A plan is just a plan and can and should change as it needs to. Hers changed many times, but all decisions were still with the vision in mind. She said, be curious and reach out. You will find that people are mostly good and will be willing to share. And also that knowledge shared when executed on will build the foundation to the life you dream of. And the final thing that she'd say is, you are enough. Keep telling yourself that you are enough, even in your darkest moments. Because it's true, we all sit on the shoulders of our ancestors and we are absolutely enough. So 
That's all from me this week, and that was a wonderful message to end on, I reckon. Um, I'll be back next Wednesday with another money journey of another Kiwi. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please do hit subscribe, and it will automatically update in your podcast app each time I release a new episode. And if you want to get in touch, you can find me at thehappysaver.com. And I would love it if you could give me a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening to this. And please do share this with your friends. These are the best ways that people can learn about the podcast, and I would Love it if you would talk more about money with your own friends and help me continue to help others be better with money. So until next time, happy saving.